So Hebrews 5, 11 through to Hebrews 6, verse 12. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once enlightened, had been enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, who had shared in the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. We th- the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Well, I I was sitting over there until I stood up here and... uh, myself, perhaps because of the absence of a sweater or a jumper, uh, feeling a bit cold. So I wanted to ask if you are comfortable or whether you would like windows closed. A bit chilly? Thank you very much. Perhaps you could... Uh, I think you have to use a thingy. It's there. Yeah. Not, not fully, but m- mostly, I think. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, one of the finest preachers in the 19th century in London, said that the next to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, preacher's next best helper is fresh air. So I don't want to <laughs> deprive you of it entirely. When he was at uh, New Park Street Chapel, he... Um, he, he, it was impossible to open the windows in that church because um, they had been painted and painted over the years. It was not possible to open them. And he pleaded with the deacons that something was done about this and nothing was done about it. And then one morning, every window was broken. And Spurgeon offered um, five pound reward to the person who was discovered and that money be given to them. Although he later confessed that the hand with which he held a walking stick his own walking stick was the hand that broke the windows. <laughs> so I don't know why I said all that. It's got nothing to do with anything I want to say. Um, 
Well, Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 12, it's often been said, it's probably a little bit of a cliche, actually, um, said about the Christian life that if you're not growing, then you are shrinking. If you're not going forward, you're slipping back. If you're not progressing as a Christian, then it's possible that you're regressing. And I do think there are good reasons from the Bible for thinking that there's an element of truth in that kind of thinking. Uh, if you think of the first chapter of Second Peter, we are encouraged to add to our faith, to add this and to add that and to add the other. And Peter says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, then you won't be an unprofitable Christian. So it's, uh, it's the, the metaphor of growth is, um, and I, I, I get confused because I've been so long out of school, I get confused between a metaphor and a simile. So please forgive me if I confuse those things this morning. But these metaphors, partly because the life of a disciple of Jesus is compared in the Bible to birth. Becoming a Christian is to be born again. And uh, we are cons constantly referred to in the Bible as sons and daughters of God. And, and when you have a newborn baby, you are constantly looking for signs of life and growth. Health is that comes. And one of the things she does is she weighs the baby. Is the baby putting on weight? Is the baby taking or losing weight? So she talks to the new mother about the feeding. How is it going? Is the baby getting enough milk and so on? It's the kind of thinking uh, is to the forefront of uh, this letter to the Hebrews. And the author of the letter is upset because these new baby Christians, these Hebrew Christians, were getting thin and underweight. And it, it, it looked like they might not survive as Christians at all. I, they started well, he acknowledges that, but he's very concerned that they might not finish strong, might not finish as Christians at all. <coughs> and he's a man who's very familiar with history. He has... And he knows that history has lessons for the present. And as a Hebrew Christian, he's mindful of one of the most tragic lessons of Jewish history. The whole generation of Jews who came out of Egypt with Moses at the Exodus, they never made it to the Promised Land. They, they started well. They, they had their life together. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt by a series of stunning miracles they walked into the Sinai Peninsula expecting to be in the Promised Land within a few weeks. But they actually spent 40 years in the desert and everybody who came out of Egypt with Moses died in the wilderness apart from two small families. So the writer is afraid, he expressed it in chapter 4, the writer is afraid that the same tragic process might happen with these Hebrew Christians, that they might, not, they might fail to enter eternally into God's rest. So that was chapter 4. Now we're going to look at these verses this morning. Um, the first point I want to make to you is I want to talk about the immature baby syndrome. It's nothing to do with the fact that my 13th grandchild has been born a fortnight ago today. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. But it's, I think it comes from the scriptures, not from personal experience. The Immature Baby Syndrome, verses 11 to 14 of chapter 5. <coughs> I won't read it all again, but about this we have much to say. 
and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, earlier in uh, chapter 5, the author was getting excited about the wonderful truths in the Old Testament connected to priesthood. He, he does love his Old Testament, and he knows that the whole subject of priesthood has significance for Jesus and for the Christian life. And he wants particularly to expound the significance of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Uh, you see that in verse 6, the priesthood of Melchizedek. But he feels he has to restrict himself because of the immaturity of these Christians that he's writing to. He says, verse 11, about this we have much to say. But there's this problem, and at this point he explains what it is. And significantly, he uses, for the first time, uh, a Greek word. Nigel pointed this out to me this week. In verse 11, he uses a Greek word. He uses it again in verse 12 of chapter 6. So look at verse 11 of chapter 5. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. The Greek word is repeated, and it's only used twice in the whole of the New Testament. So, what's the word? Lazy. Have you got it lazy in both verses? Clever, isn't it? See, the New International Version, most versions translate it differently in the verses. It's the Greek word nothros. It can mean sluggish, uh, lazy, or dull. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used uh, in the book of Proverbs of the lazy man. It's used of the farmer who knows that he has to, what he has to do to cultivate a crop and to bring, bring everything to a harvest, but he can't be bothered. He can't be bothered to clear the fields. He can't be bothered to sow the seed. So he's lazy. I went by the field of the sluggard, the authorized version says. And it was all overgrown. It's used of the man who will find any excuse to avoid going out to work. So he says in Proverbs, there's a lion in the street. I'll be killed outside the house. How often do you find a lion in the street? No, any excuse not to go to work. That's The Bible calls him the lazy man. Now that same word is used here uh, in verse 12 of um, Verse 12 of chapter 6 and verse 11. We, we have, we've got much to say about this, about this Melchizedek business, but you've become lazy. You've become dull. You've become sluggardly. You've not been bothered to put your mind to the reading of the word of God. You've become negligent towards the gathering of a harvest of biblical wisdom. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that it struck me this week. I hope this isn't straying too much beyond the remit of the Word of God, but it struck me that this has sharp relevance to our Western culture. We've become, uh, and I've got to avoid the old grumpy old man syndrome, but we've become a generation of sloppy, lazy consumers and reactionaries. Every day, we are pouring forth a mountain of tripe through our social media. We've made the knee-jerk reaction a way of life. 
you see a tweet, I do this myself. Oh, that's interesting. Read it, 147 characters, retweet. And then later on I think, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Knee-jerk reaction. Before we can say 147, we shoot off an, uh, an unthought-through response. Now, you see, too much knee-jerking actually does make you a jerk. <laughs> too much twittering does make you a twit. There's an immaturity to all this that is actually quite alarming. The BBC on the news are now quoting tweets, what people have said about some item in the news. I think there's an immaturity to it that's alarming. Uh, I, I hope it's not just me being grumpy old man, but to my generation, <laughs> we weren't like this. Now, I would suggest that there's a sloppiness about it, a reluctance to take care uh, and, a, and take pains about reading something, thinking about it, making a judgment about it, and then having reflected on it, making some mature statement about it. There's a book coming out soon by one of my favourite authors. He's uh, descended from Scotsman, He's, and I don't know whether his name is pronounced Niall or Neil. Do you know? N-I-A-L-L. -L. Do you have any mates at school who had that name? Niall, I, I'm saying Niall because there was a footballer called Niall but, uh, and that's how he said that. Anyway, he's called Niall Ferguson. He's a Harvard professor of history, uh, descended from Scotsman. And he says, it was in the Times this morning, this is a quote from his new book that's coming out on the 5th of October, which I've just uh, ordered this morning. The global network has become a transmission mechanism for all kinds of manias and panics. The global network has become a transmission mechanism for all kinds of manias and panics. Fake news. And he, he says, isn't it amazing that it's perfectly possible that the Russian intelligence service paid $100,000 uh, for Facebook advertising that changed the direction of the American election? Because you bung something on Facebook or on Twitter and it spreads like wildfire and often it's not, nobody thinks about it. It's the same here. These Hebrews had experienced the babyhood of the Christian life. They drunk in the mother's milk of the gospel. They'd embraced the basic elements of Christian truth. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Your sins can be forgiven but they had become sluggish when it came to moving onto the theological meat of the Word of God. Their appetite to know, to reflect upon, to apply the, uh, a growing knowledge of that gospel, their appetite for that was almost gone. This is how John Stott, the great Bible teacher, uh, interprets this passage. It, it, it describes those who develop a couldn't-care-less attitude to the study of Holy Scripture. I couldn't care less attitude to the study of Holy Scripture and have failed to give themselves, to give themselves to a regular, methodical and painstaking study of its teaching and its relevance in everyday life. There's a telling phrase in verse 13. Look at verse 13. You have become unskilled in the world, word of righteousness because you're a baby. And the word used, the Greek word used for baby there, implies not talking yet. 
I was looking at my granddaughter, my new granddaughter last night, and just hoping that she'd say something to me, then I could boast that I was the first one to hear her first word, which she didn't. Oh, she's only two weeks old. Anyway, a sign that you were maturing as a Christian is that you have moved on from a simple diet, although lovely diet, of basic milk stuff to a varied diet, the kind that grown-ups consume. As uh, Kimberly was enjoying her milk last night, the rest of us were getting tucked into an Indian meal from the tamarind spice. It's what you do, isn't it, when you grow up? If we were all there sucking, sucking milk from a straw, you'd think something wrong with the Tyndall families and the Stolt families. Well, you want to get to grips with what the Bible teaches about as many topics as possible. You become a questioning pest. You become a reader as far as in you lies. You want to know and enjoy more of God. You want to grow. You're challenged. When somebody tells you about the 65-year-old Harry Carpenter of Bristol, that retired gardener who read his Puritans avidly, who taught himself Hebrew and Greek when he was 65, so that he could enjoy the word of God in the original languages. A widow who tried to get as many preachers who'd come to his church for the weekend. He wanted them to come and stay in his house because he wanted to grill them and question them about the great doctrines of the faith. 65 years of age. Oh, he said, come with me, I'll show you your red room. I went upstairs, just me and him. I was getting a bit worried. I went upstairs, he showed me the room. He said, Herbert Carson slept in that bed last week. Man, I slept on the floor. No, I was tempted to sleep on the floor. I thought, oh, Herbert Carson, he was a fine person, Herbert Carson, but I didn't need to know that. Another sign that you're moving on, another sign that you're moving on is that you're getting better at distinguishing the gold from the dross. Verse 14, the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If, you, if you've got an inquiring mind and you want to know more and you want to apply more, you want to appreciate more, you want to love more of God's truth, you begin to develop a mind that can discern. You can spot the fake from the unreal, uh, the unreal from the real, the fake from the, the authentic. You can distinguish the, the dross from the gold. You, you don't become a judgmental critic, but you don't, do learn to be critical of things to make sound judgments about this and that in the life of the church. You can begin to say, no, 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 that's a, that's a primary issue about which we must always hold the line, but that's a secondary issue. And so many problems in church life are caused by people who take hold of secondary issues and in, insist that they be made at the center. No, these Hebrews had become so lazy that they'd essentially forgotten even the basics they, they'd refused to go on from the basics, but now they were forgetting the basics and what the basics actually mean. You need someone to come and teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And what you see, what he means by basic principles in the first two verses of chapter 6. My, my dear wife, Pauline, belonged to a Christian church in her teens that had a love for basics and preached the basics, but they didn't have much appetite for the meat and vegetables of the Word of God. Almost every meeting, 
They preach the basics. At almost every meeting, they call people forward to a bench at the front and ask them to come and repent of their sins and be counseled and to be prayed for. And Pauline, bless her, she was back and forth from the mercy seat, as they call it. She was back and forth frequently, all too frequently, because there was little understanding of what the go- how the gospel developed. Now, I'm very grateful to God that in my... I think this is gradually sagging, not unlike myself. I'm very grateful to God that in my teenage years, I had a wake-up call from the Lord about a year after my conversion. And it was such a significant wake-up call that um, I actually began to doubt later in in life whether my conversion had actually been my conversion. I was challenged to become a seeker. I began to pester older Christians with questions. I began to read Christian books avidly. I left school when I was 16 because I couldn't be bothered to study anymore. I read Christian books on the bus and on the train. I learned to read Christian books as I walked along the pavement and at the same time to avoid lampposts. I started with the lovely ministry of Dr. W.E. Sangster, who was the Methodist minister of the Westminster Central Hall. I soon found myself devouring Puritan paperbacks. My mate Peter Brumby and I once travelled 120 miles from Bristol to London to hear the incomparable preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones just for one day. I was this close when I was 17, 18 to becoming a dull of hearing a perpetual infant in the Christian life until the wake-up call came from somebody. I thought I was doing pretty well until as a 28-year-old minister... I attended a Banner of Truth conference for young adults. Uh, it, uh, it had been, um, I'd been a trainee minister and a practicing minister for seven years. And here at this conference, I met a bunch of teenagers from the Free Church of Scotland. And I was shocked by how much more they knew than I knew, by how much more they understood about the Christian life and about the scriptures than I knew after four years at Theological College. I chatted to them over meals and found that this was um, challengingly the case. Friends, we need, we need to be practiced readers of God's truth. We need to be avid reflectors on the truth. We need to be interested conversationalists about the truth. And we need to be joyful seekers after more truth so that we can avoid the immature baby syndrome and find ourselves consuming, thinking in the same way now as we were 15 years ago when we professed to know Jesus. Well, that's the first thing, the the, uh, immature baby syndrome. Syndrome. The second thing I'm going to talk about is the unfruitful field syndrome. Chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. It's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and so on, have fallen away to restore them again. For the land that has drunk in the rain that often falls on it either produces a crop of 
good stuff or a bunch of worthless thorns and weeds. What kind of field are we? Now, I'm passing over one of another syndrome that I could have talked about, which is the unfinished building syndrome, which is in verses 1 to 2. But maybe I'll try and get you to talk about that in your life group. Oh, it's not life groups this week. No, it's not. Oh, I've been spared. The unfruitful field syndrome. The unfruitful field syndrome. Now, these verses, I've got to admit, these verses have caused consternation um, through with theologians and Christians down through the generations, especially those who believe that the Bible teaches what the theologians call the preservation of the saints. Scriptures seem to many of us, including myself, scriptures seem to teach that once you become a true Christian and receive new birth and become a child of God, you can never fall away to destruction. God will preserve you to the very end of life. It's usually captured in the phrase, once saved, always saved. Jesus said, my sheep are in my hand and nothing shall pluck them from there. So I believe with all my heart that when you become a true Christian and experience the power of new birth, you will never again cease to be a child of God. That's my conviction. However, here are people in this passage who've had a significant taste of gospel blessing. And it's led nowhere. This is the, the entity, the concept that this writer uh, holds forth. He speaks about the case of those who've once been enlightened. Verse 4, you see that? Those who've once been enlightened. They've experienced enlightenment. Their spiritual eyes have been opened to see and appreciate certain gospel realities. Uh, you can see a list of those realities in verses 1 to 2. Repentance. They've known godly sorrow about the things they'd previously trusted in to make life work. They, they had repented of their old way of life. They turned from those things and put their faith in God. They'd been welcomed into church membership through baptism and the laying on of hands. They'd begun to believe that one day this present world would give way to a new world through the resurrection of the dead and the coming of the judgment of God. In spiritual shorthand, this writer says they had tasted the heavenly gift, the word of God, and the powers of the age to come. But it's possible for this kind of person to experience a catastrophic fall from the truth. They become people, he says in verse 6, who crucify once again the Son of God and hold him up to contempt. There have been and there are many Christians who slip backwards in the Christian life. They've behaved badly for, for weeks or months or maybe in some cases for years. But they return to the Lord Jesus and have been restored. They were backsliding, they turned away from the Lord, but they were aware somewhere deep inside themselves that uh, they belonged to the world of gospel truth, but here they were living in the world the w with the world of flesh and the devil, and they are uncomfortable. They, they have left the world that they really belong, and they're trying to get used again to the world that they really don't belong, they've been saved from, and they're uncomfortable. Deep down, they're uncomfortable, and eventually they come back to Christ. There are many Christians 
for whom that's been true. But there are these people here that the man here envisaged, this writer, to crucify once again the Son of God and hold him up to contempt. This is speaking of a re-crucifying of the Jesus Christ. Now the first crucifixion involved a scorning of Jesus' claims, disparaging his person, spitting on his dignity, wishing him harm, wanting to remove him and his influence and his power from my life, saying that he's worth nothing, holding, holding him up before the world contemptuously. That's what was going on during the first crucifixion. And there are these people who've enjoyed a significant measure of Christianity and the gifts of God for a while, and then they re-crucify the Lord Jesus. Complete rejection. They treat him essentially in the same way as those people who treated him in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There were those on that uh, Good Friday morning who screamed, we have no king but Caesar. Away with him, crucify him. We want Barabbas, we don't want Jesus. See, what this is saying is there's only one saviour of the world, only one son of God. There's only one crucifixion that can make us right with God and bring us forgiveness of sin. If you spurn that, if you hold that in contempt, you are without hope. There's no hope for you. There's nowhere you can go for hope if you, in a hard-hearted manner, re-crucify the Lord Jesus. There's only one rock of safety where you can stand in order to survive the storm of the judgment of God. This passage says that all of us here this morning, we are like a field. In various ways, God has sent rain upon the land. Imagine, just think about the rain that falls upon the land that is the field of your heart. You've heard the gospel of Jesus from parents and friends. You've got access to a church that loves the Bible. You've got access to a pastor who spends the best part of his week in understanding the word of God so that he can communicate that truth to you. You've got access to a congregation here or wherever you come from where Jesus is honored and where the members of that congregation are doing their feeble and weak best to live for the glory of Christ. Those things are rain. And you've got the Bible in your own language. You've got a Christian, book, not, Christian bookshop not very far away from you uh, where you can buy good stuff, you can order it online. You've got tons and tons of gallons and gallons of rain that can fall upon the field that is your heart. What's growing in that field? Is there a harvest that is growing that is to some degree to the glory of God? Is the Christian life forming there and pushing up little roots, little shoots of love and patience and kindness and, 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 and joy and faith? Or is the field barren of evidence that the life of God is at work in you? If the field bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, says this man. Its end is to be burned. Now, there are no sterner words in the Bible than in 
Hebrews chapter 6. He writes very sternly. He writes about the possibility of people becoming those who re-crucify Jesus. And it's the people who, the people who re-crucify Jesus are the people who don't move on from babyhood and then eventually despise the thing that once they said they loved. Now, even though he writes so sternly, sternly, the author then speaks tenderly. He says that he's actually really hopeful about these people to whom he's writing, that they aren't barren, weed-filled uh, fields, but are fruitful Christians. He's seen some of the fruit of the gospel in them. They've worked hard for Jesus. They've grown in love. They serve their fellow Christians in the name of Christ. The fruit that flows from salvation is showing in many of these believers. I'm persuaded that you are not those who re-crucify the Savior, but I am worried about you that you might become one of these. Don't be sluggish. Don't be lazy. Like those who through, be, be amongst those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Finish strong. Keep on growing. Keep on seeking to grow closer to Christ, ransack the word of God, reflect on it, enjoy it, apply it, embrace it, obey it. Avoid becoming a spiritual dosser who neglects the marvelous things that God has made available so freely and abundantly to us. Through faith and patience. Patience is such a feeble English word. It, the Greek word is one of my favorite Greek words. I've only got one favorite Greek word, so it's my favorite. Macrothumia. You all know the first word, macro. You can go shopping there in Croydon. Macro, huge, big. Thumia is passion or bad temper or flowing over. It's anger that flows over. And macrothumia is a long time being daft or silly, or boneheaded. So here, all the circumstances of life come. We, we get battered, we get beaten, we, get, we struggle, we have pain. All the things that these Hebrew Christians were going through, but their circumstances, their circumstances do not cause them to give up. They are patient. They keep on going. They keep on seeking. Don't let the things that are going on around you Put off you off your development on the realities of the faith. Be a macrothumia Christian. Persist. It's harder for some of us than others. Those of us who are retired can spend 25 hours a day reflecting on the word of God. We, we've got it easy. Some of you mothers, you've got kids and you've got a lifestyle that's that's... Well, the starting pistol goes when you wake up and it, it, the finishing tape hardly comes when you fall asleep. But it's, it's really hard for some of you. Some of you mothers, my, my wife Pauline survived for a number of years on family worship. Uh, after the evening meal, we'd have family worship. She found it difficult to spend time in the word of God otherwise. I'm not being, I hope I'm not being too hard on you. But oh, it's so important not to fall into laziness and to seek to be mature by feeding on the good stuff of the Bible even if it's the doctrine of the priesthood of Melchizedek.
I'm going to stop there. I feel like I've not quite finished. But I don't know how to finish. I think they call it these days how to land the sermon. So, so I'm going to stop anyway. And I pray and then we'll sing. Father, in this whole matter, we, all of us, struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are surrounded by a culture that uh, seems to disparage quiet reflection, that seems to um, react immediately to things. We want to be people who are measured, who take hold of the word of God and chew it patiently and digest it deeply. But we, we confess that we're in a culture that uh, doesn't make that easy. And then there's the flesh. We, we find in our own um, inward life, in our own disposition, in our inclinations, we, we find it easy to be busy and alert and enthusiastic about all sorts of things. But when it comes to the painstaking digestion of the word of God, we, we, we suddenly find ourselves tired and weary and sloppy and then there's the devil uh, the enemy of our souls is keen to keep us away from the that kind of engagement with your word and your truth that would really encourage us into maturity you put everything in our way put put thoughts in our path all sorts of schemes that he has to put us off and to make us uh, dull and sluggardly Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to encourage one another through our conversations and by the example we set to each other that we might no longer be infants, but that we might be growing into maturity one by one and as a congregation. We ask you to help us in this for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>